CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Philosophy is not just about armchair thinking. It can help us live better lives and find meaning. In this episode, philosopher of mind Rebecca Roach shows us that philosophy can be the key to creating better lives in more enlightened societies. Rebecca Roach is a senior lecturer in philosophy at Royal Holloway, University of London, and her research interests range from ethics and metaphysics to the philosophy of mind and the philosophy of language. She is a pioneer in the field of philosophy of swearing, and her work has been featured in The Times, The Guardian, and the BBC. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice, and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Rebecca Roach to Philosophy for Our Times. Let's start with this question, what's philosophy for? I mean, sometimes people ask this, um, and it is kind of baffling. It's basically a toolbox. You know, sometimes when we um, talk at, you know, philosophy lecturers talk at open days to A-level students, um, and you'll sometimes get this question, you know, what is, what is philosophy? What, what, what do you do with it? Um, and it's kind of a toolbox. It's a set of um, strategies and tools and techniques that you can use to gain clarity about any sort of issue really, you know, whatever you choose to apply it to. So identifying and articulating hidden assumptions. I used to teach a logic class to undergraduates and um, undergraduates don't tend to like logic. It's got too many symbols in it and they kind of came to do an arts degree and they kind of end up like, what, what the hell are you giving me? I didn't choose to do maths. Um, so I used to kind of try and sell it to them early on by sort of saying like, this, makes, this is gonna make you really good at winning arguments with people. Now, even if you never use it again, if you're just in a debate with somebody about whatever it might be, politics, whatever, there's some techniques I'm gonna teach you that will help you dismantle your opponents. I mean, probably not actual opponents, not enemies, but you know, whoever you're talking to. Sort of work out where the flaws are in their arguments. Um, sort of hone in your objections on the actual problems with what they're saying and build your case. The reason I've used the word hidden there is that often when you're debating with somebody, they will be building an argument based on assumptions that they might not even realize they have. And sometimes that's okay. You know, uh, sometimes you might be arguing with somebody and, and you both, you know, say you're arguing about politics and you both are working with an assumption that equality is important, something like that. I mean, that seems important and acceptable, right? But, but you might not realize you're doing it. And sometimes people do that with um, problematic assumptions as well. Spotting dodgy reasoning, I mean, kind of hopefully self-explanatory. Um, asking why ad infinitum. So philosophers are a bit like toddlers in this respect. Um, and it's kind of socially unacceptable. You know, if somebody's saying something to you and you just, you might ask why once, but you're not gonna keep on doing that 
unless you're a philosopher. And it is, it is actually a useful technique, right? Because every time you ask why, you get a little bit deeper into the foundational justifying claims um, that underpin what, what somebody's claiming. So philosophers aren't afraid to do that. Um, and analogies, uh, arguing by analogy is a really important philosophical technique. Um, and it's basically a, a way of saying, you know, this is what we think about this issue. We can compare it to the way that we're thinking about this other issue. And if they're kind of similar in what looks like to be relevant respects, then you should be treating them similarly. So just an example there, um, you might have heard of the, um, the watchmaker argument for the existence of God. Um, this is something that Richard Dawkins talks about in his blind watchmaker argument, where the, the reasoning goes that suppose you find a watch in the middle of a field and it's, you know, it works fine, it's, it's, it, it looks like a watch, it functions like a watch. How would you assume that it's got there? And the answer you're supposed to come up with is somebody's, put, somebody's designed this. It hasn't just kind of popped up there by accident. There's a designer behind it. And so this is supposed to be an analogy for the world. You know, the world is a kind of complex and well-ordered system. Um, and so it's kind of like the watch. You don't just assume that it's popped up by itself. You assume that somebody's created it. So um, the, uh, if that argument is successful, you're supposed to end up believing in God. Here's zooming out a bit. This is what we, this is what philosophers do. It's kind of looking under the bonnet of reality, or looking under the hood of reality, if you're an American. It's just a sort of general, a way of uh, gaining a better understanding of the world around us. What part of reality you're looking at depends on what you're interested in. You can examine anything you like, really, with philosophical techniques. But I'm going to give you a bit of my own story. So when I started out, uh, I mean, I've been a philosopher kind of most of my adult life, kind of quite, a, quite a boring career. I started out 18 doing a, a, a philosophy degree and then I just carried on and I kind of went into IT for a few years and that was a bad idea. But then I came back to philosophy and that's kind of the way it's been ever since. And I was always sort of interested, especially early on, in quite kind of abstract issues like things to do with our experience of time. And it's like, you know, is backwards causation in theory possible? You know, could future events cause earlier events? What's a person? You know, what makes you the same person now that you were when you were six years old and so on? And the reason I'm saying that's quite abstract is because philosophers are arguing about it and a hundred years from now, they're probably still going to be, we are probably still going to be arguing about it, right? There's nothing really that's kind of, there's no kind of resolution. You're not going to make a discovery that's going to kind of, oh, right, okay, that's what free will is. As the years have ticked by, I've become sort of increasingly interested in more applied issues. So um, the stuff that just kind of matters in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, so I kind of moved quite slowly into applied ethics, um, philosophy of medicine, um, philosophy of mental health and psychiatry and so on. Um, I more recently got interested in philosophy of language and more recently still, so like the kind of like getting more and more applied. Um, a couple of years ago, it occurred to me that actually philosophy could be a really useful tool in just helping people live their lives, just kind of helping people be happier, success, more successful and so on. And none of this is particularly new. These are, th th this kind of approach is quite ancient. You know, if you read sort of people like Aristotle, one of the driving questions there is sort of how can we live better lives? 
So I have sort of gradually, I kind of, I tend to write more for general audiences these days because um, it tends to be kind of the public in general who's kind of interested in, um, oh God, you know, sort of how, how can I use social media in a healthy way? Um, how should I think about the friends I've made online? This, this sort of stuff, rather than sort of academic philosophers. Most recently I've started a podcast. I, don't really want to kind of plug, <laughs> plug it here, but so I'm sort of trying to apply philosophy to um, the sorts of problems that people grapple with every day. That's been what's been going on with me, and I'm going to give you a little taste of um, a way that you could use philosophy, like kind of right now, to start um, being happier and living better lives. So I'm going to focus on like a, an example because I'm not going to talk about everything. Um, but here's a familiar problem. Um, I did quite a bit of coaching these days, and um, I am kind of telling you about a problem that comes up again and again with people that I see. We don't see the world as it really is. Most of the time, we don't think about that. You think like, you know, the objects you see in the world are really there, that you're seeing them kind of accurately as they would be if you weren't there observing them at all. You know, we don't tend to think that the world we observe differs, differs in any significant way from the way that we perceive it. But actually that's wrong. And, and there's sort of a, a tradition of hundreds of years actually of philosophers telling you exactly why that's wrong. I'm not particularly interested in perception here. I'm interested in the beliefs that we hold about ourselves. Because just as your senses filter the world around you, um, the beliefs that you hold about yourself do the same. And we don't always realize that. Because you, you, you might not realize that you hold the beliefs that, that do this. So what do I mean? I mean, deeply held beliefs, right? These kind of are like sort of core beliefs that you've probably had since childhood, right? The sort of things that you might, if you wanted to uncover them, you might have to go to psych, like psychotherapy, something like that. So you might not be able to kind of, you know, someone to, to ask you like, like, what are your fundamental beliefs? The ones that kind of govern your decisions and your choices as you go through the world. You might have to think hard about it and you still might not come up with an answer, but they do show up in the choices you make. And by reflecting on the choices you make and the choices you don't make, um, this can kind of give you an insight into the sorts of beliefs that are guiding you here. So suppose this happens. You apply for a job and you get rejected. So you feel bad. Um, well, here's what lots of people think if you get rejected from a job. This is evidence that I'm not good enough. Another example. You do something at work and your boss doesn't say anything positive about it. So you might think, oh, she thinks what I've done is rubbish. Final example, I promise. Your friend doesn't use as many happy emojis as usual in her text message. So you think she's annoyed with me. Okay, so there's these kind of negative judgments that are that we make just as we go through life, you know, sort of just the way somebody might respond to us or a decision that we're confronted with or just somebody's manner. You know, we're sort of constantly drawing these little conclusions about what these things that we encounter mean. And here is where we kind of get an insight into what some of the core beliefs that filter our reality might be. So we have, right, you get rejected from a job and you can, if you conclude that you're not good enough as a result of that, that's only something that you're going to conclude if you already believe that, right? If you think you're fantastic and you get rejected from a job, it's kind of like, oh, those, those idiots, they just don't recognize my immense worth or, or something like that. These are beliefs that you hold before this stuff happens. And then when certain things happen, you kind of interpret those happenings through the lens of these beliefs. And you think you're seeing evidence for them, but you're not really. 
Now, here's a problem with those beliefs, in case you haven't spotted already that's <laughs> a problem with those beliefs. They're foundational, right? They're kind of, they kind of make up who you are. And that means that you hold them and you kind of build other stuff on them. And what you build on them is unsupported because those beliefs are wrong, or at least they're unjustified. What might you build if you believe I'm not good enough or I'm incompetent or people don't like me? What sort of things might you build? Like, what am I talking about when I talk, talk about build, building on those beliefs? Well, they determine the choices you might make. You know, if you think you're not good enough, then maybe there's certain opportunities that will come up that you could go for, but which you decide not to. You know, I won't go for that promotion because I'm not good enough. Or this person's invited me to their dinner party, but I know they don't like me really, and no, nor does everybody else, so I'm going to turn it down, etc. Now, in case that's still too abstract, imagine knowing somebody who you love, who you're close to, and Imagine they're in a relationship with a partner who says these sorts of things to you. You know, they're married to somebody who says to them things like, you're not good enough, or you're incompetent, or nobody likes you. We say these sorts of things to ourselves and think there's nothing wrong with it, right? But then when we imagine it said to somebody that we love, then we might see the problem. And perhaps you can get an intuitive grasp there of the sort of problems that those, those sorts of things might cause in, in that person's life. So here's like philosophy to the rescue. Uh, there's some techniques from philosophy that you can use here. Um, one is to find the beliefs in the first place, to be open and curious about what those beliefs might be that kind of guide the way we move through the world, and to be open to rejecting them if they turn out not to be justified. Now, this is what Descartes did in the 17th century. So he was famous for his method of doubt, which I kind of don't want to suggest you try full on. I mean, what he did basically is he, he thought, well, all the information I have about the world, everything I think I know is based on information that originally came to me through my senses. And our senses can deceive us, right? So, so it could be that everything I think I know is actually wrong. So he set about rejecting everything he believed until he kind of dug down and happened upon something that he thought he could be certain of. And the certain belief he arrived at is famously that he exists. This is where the conclusion, I think, therefore I am, comes from. He realized he couldn't coherently doubt his own existence. Um, and then he tries to kind of build up everything on that. And that's, I think, less successful. Um, but, but he's really good at the doubt. Um, now, you maybe don't want to go and reject like literally everything you think you know which would likely cause any problems. You know, I think I'm supposed to be at work at nine o'clock on Monday, but I'm actually going to reject that and just not turn up. I mean, that, that sort of thing is going to cause problems for you. Um, here he is, meditations on first philosophy, in case you want to check that out. But you could do a kind of lighter version, a kind of toned down version of what Descartes does. Just be open to the possibility that you're moving through your life making assumptions which might not be incorrect, especially if they're negative assumptions about yourself. You know, especially if you conclude, you make the sort of generalized conclusions that I mentioned earlier, where you sort of, something happens, you think, I'm not good enough. They don't like me. I'm always going to fail. This sort of thing. Just be open about, open to the possibility that those beliefs might actually not be justified. You've picked them up somewhere along the way. And because you don't see them, you know, you don't, you think you're seeing the world as it really is. You, you don't even realize you're being, you're being shaped by those beliefs. You might not realize that it's possible to, to question them and even reject them. So let's go back to the job rejection. So you get rejected from a job and you think, here's evidence that I'm not good enough. 
So if we were doing this kind of Descartes light approach, we could do this. We could say, well, are there any flaws in that reasoning or any other possible explanations of what happened? You know, any other way that you could interpret your job rejection? Again, you know, I sort of mentioned analogies. It's sometimes helpful to think about how you would speak to another person in this situation. You know, if your best friend just got rejected from a job they applied for, you probably wouldn't say to them, that shows you're not good enough. If you wouldn't say it to your friend, then why are you saying it to yourself? So I think, you know, kind of focusing on, focusing on a third person can help here. Another philosopher who can help us out here, um, Immanuel Kant. So this is about kind of 100, 150 years after Descartes. He was writing about this sort of stuff. So I've talked about how we don't perceive the world as it really is. We perceive it through a filter. And this idea goes back to Kant. He thought we can't perceive the world as it really is. He made a distinction between the noumenal world, which is the world of things as they are in themselves, and the phenomenal world, which is the things as they appear to us. And we only ever get to see the phenomenal world. Like we can kind of make inferences about what the noumenal world might be like, but we don't actually get experience of it. Um, and here's like this sort of final point here is kind of like a really rough gist of what he's saying here, that sort of any time you experience the world, what you're actually experiencing is as much yourself and the way you're made up as the world. I mean, there's obviously a mixture. But this is an interesting idea, and I think it can have application here to, you know, the thought that the beliefs, often the negative beliefs we hold about ourselves, are part of the way that we filter the world. So let's go back to this idea of evidence. You know, something happens and you think, this is evidence of this thing I believe about myself, that I'm not good enough or that you know, I'm always gonna fail or nobody likes me or whatever it is. Because we see that, what, we, what looks like evidence, because we're already committed to the belief in the first place, right? It's like we sort of go around with a cookie cutter and we kind of ignore anything that doesn't fit the shape that we're interested in. But anytime something does fit, we kind of go, all oh, right, okay, that proves it. Everything is like star-shaped or whatever it might be. So. If you do something at work, you like meet a deadline or something, um, complete a project, your boss doesn't say anything positive about it, and you conclude, that proves she thinks I'm rubbish. Well, it might not be. You know, that's not, that, that kind of, that fits with what's happened, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't show that, that that's true. Because there's other things that fit with what happened. There's other possible interpretations. So here are some other ways of interpreting these things that happen, these unpleasant, stressful things that happen in a way that don't actually prove that we are fundamentally worthless and nobody likes us. So it could be that you got rejected from a job because there were too many highly qualified candidates and I didn't get lucky this time. So such saturation um, of good candidates that everyone you interview is pretty much fantastic, but you can only appoint one. Um, maybe your boss didn't say anything positive because she doesn't think you need her praise. You know, maybe she didn't want to be patronizing. Maybe she kind of knows that you know you're good, etc. Maybe your friend didn't use happy emojis in her text because she was distracted when she texted you. I mean, you might have been on the other end of this, right? Sort of replying to somebody and trying to do something else at the same time. And then they say, oh, what? You sound really annoyed. What's the matter? And you're like, oh, no, no, I'm just trying to communicate and do like 10 other things at once. So these are all possible interpretations that fit with what's happened, right? And you're probably like, if you're inclined to, to the more negative view, you're probably like really resistant that these things are correct, which is fine. These uh, assumptions we make about the world don't change very fast. But, you know, by being open to the fact that they might 
not be the correct ones is, is a start, I think. So here are some final tips I, I want to leave you with in case you kind of want to take a little toolbox back with you. The first one, and I think this is the most important, is to accept that there is a filter. You'll see you're experiencing the world through the lens of what you believe about yourself and what you believe about what things mean. So when you get rejected from a job you're applying for, you're not like literally seeing, experiencing your own worthlessness, right? That's just a kind of stamp that you're putting on what's happened. You know, getting rejected from a job doesn't mean anything in particular about you at all, right? Don't let self-criticism pass without scrutiny. So, you know, I've talked about how we kind of think that we are seeing the world as it really is. And so it's kind of, you know, you might end up thinking, well, how do we know which bits to keep and which bits to reject or question? Because we don't want to be kind of Descartes and reject everything. Um, and so a little shortcut, I think, is anytime you're criticizing yourself, it's, it's probably the case that um, there's some unjustified, unhelpful filtering belief lurking in the shadows. I mean, basically, anytime you say something to yourself that you wouldn't say to another person, there's something fishy going on. Don't let it pass, just reflect on it. You don't have to sort of suddenly just think, okay, yeah, I am fantastic, but just be aware that it's part of the filter. It's not part of reality. Here's a good one, try articulating it. I think this is really common. If we think things about ourselves like, I'm always gonna fail and nobody likes me. I mean, if you say these things out loud, often, as, even as you're saying them, you recognize how ridiculous they are, right? But it often gets to, it doesn't often get to that stage, right? We just have these kind of low key down on ourselves attitudes that we don't express in a sentence or we don't express them to other people. And when you do, when you force yourself to do that, then you, you, know, you sometimes kind of get a sense of, okay, yeah, there's, there's gotta be something wrong going on here. How might things look with a different filter? So I think one of the powerful things about recognizing that there is a filter is it opens up the possibility of using a different filter. How might I be interpreting this job rejection if I thought I was absolutely fantastic? You know, if I was like the world's most arrogant job applicant, and I'm not suggesting that's who you should be, but using it as a thought experiment just to make the contrast with how you actually feel can be a useful exercise. I mean, maybe, maybe the reality is somewhere in between, you know, the sort of luck, fit with the company, et cetera, experience and so on. You know, there's sort of all sorts of things, there's all sorts of possible explanations that don't center around your just being bizarrely more incompetent than everybody else. This one, number five, I've already mentioned, would you say that to a friend? I think that's, that's one of the most useful strategies. This is a sort of philosophical tool of analogy. Test out the things that you say to yourself, especially the negative things, by imagining saying them to a friend. And often you'll be horrified right? because you sound like a, an abusive sociopath. But it's kind of fine if we say it to ourselves, right? We're, we're completely fine with telling ourselves that nobody likes us. And the final point is don't expect miracles because we're not, you know, I've kind of talked about philosophical tools and it's all about logic and whether certain inferences make sense and whether certain claims are justified. But that's not the way we think. I mean, we kind of, there's a bit of that hopefully, right? But, but there's a lot of kind of gut feeling and being guided by our emotions and 
that's just life. That's just part of what makes us human. So, you know, it could be if you if you're kind of listening to this presentation thinking, yeah, I do think quite negatively about myself and maybe I should stop that. I mean, you're not going to walk out of here and never say anything horrible to yourself again. Because a lot of this is about emotion, right? It's, it, it, and that takes a while to catch up. But you can loosen its hold, I think. By, by using some of this, these techniques, you can kind of loosen the hold. And eventually, a year from now, you might be a bit kinder to yourself. Okay, that's it. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.